Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A long time ago, a guy named James was pretty strapped for cash. And the question was, how could he make some money, and relatively quickly if possible? Fortunately for James, he was in politics. And for him, the line between business and governing, and I don't think this is too much of an exaggeration, he was pretty much non-existent. There's so much maneuvering that goes on between company members, like the leaders of the company, not just everyone who invests, but specifically the leaders and members kind of the equivalent of like high placed members of the government. And um, so that there's officially the company is supposed to be running this trade, uh, which they do, but that to do that requires lots of negotiation between them and the regime. That's Rupali Mishra, an associate professor of history at Auburn University. These company leaders, the elected leaders, are meeting with members of the regime sometimes almost daily. So there's no real way that you can say, oh, this is a business that's completely separate from the government. And that was not weird for them. That was really normal. That feels a lot less comfortable for us today. But it still happens. It clearly still happens. The regime she's talking about is the regime of King James I of England, the guy who was strapped for cash. But perhaps more importantly, the company she's talking about shaped the corporate world we live in. It changed what it means to be rich and how you get there. It was called the East India Company, chartered in 1600, focused mostly on trade between England and Asia. And even though its story is more than 400 years old, the world it helped create was our world. A world of international trade, of people who own stock, of people who are wealthy, not because they inherited castles or heads of cattle, but because they're wealthy on paper, which, if you think about it, is how most of today's richest Americans made their money, through Microsoft stock or Walmart stock or Facebook stock. If the majority of aristocrats, let's say, in the early 17th century, their wealth comes from owning a lot of land that they get rents off of, they land's finite, but you're not going to, you know, unless you conquer another country, right? You don't get more land. You can't just build it. And so the East India Company is part of this kind of flourishing of overseas ventures that offer all these other opportunities, these new opportunities to make money. Which, Mishra says, led to some perhaps unexpected consequences. You can leave your stock to someone else. So slowly over time, more and more women, for example, become involved in investing in the company. They're in a slightly odd position in that they're not quite members. They, they can't be you know, free brothers of the company because they're women. But at the same time, they're profiting off of it. And by the end of the 17th century, when that, when that active, more active stock market develops, women become one of these groups that we don't hear a lot about, but are making money and are, are benefiting from these opportunities that that not actually having to own the land yourself or do the work yourself gives you. But here's a question. By the early 1600s, humans had been around for a long time. They'd been making money for a long time. They'd been selling stuff for a long time. So why was the kind of corporate world that we live in now so heavily influenced by a company that said, we're not going to trade in books or in leather goods or in grains. Nope, we're going to trade with Asia. Well, there's two answers to that question. First, people really wanted stuff from Asia, India particularly. 
the main thing in the early 17th century was spices. So black pepper uh, was one of the major commodities that Europeans wanted from the East Indies, but a number of other spices, in some ways what I almost think of as the pumpkin pie spices. So cinnamon, ginger, nutmeg, mace, cloves, and most of those. Pepper you can find in a lot of places in the East Indies, but a few of those are actually only available in a very few places. Nutmegs, for example, were only available in about five islands. Uh, It's a very actually like distinctly limited group of places where you could get nutmegs and cloves and things like that. They also got indigo, so blue dye. That was another one that the English East India Company got a lot of as well, From in that case, from the Mughal Empire. So that's the first reason that trade to Asia was the basis of such a world-altering corporation. The second reason, says Rupali Mishra, who's the author of the book A Business of State, Commerce, Politics, and the Birth of the East India Company, is that getting from England to India was very risky business. So it's really far away. From from England, you can only get to the East Indies if you leave at a certain time of year. And in fact, that's the case until steam, because the monsoon winds control, they blow one direction for part of the year, and then they blow the other direction for part of the year. So you can't go there year-round. You've got a particular window where you've got to leave England or the Netherlands or France or wherever it is that you're going from. You have a particular window. If you don't leave in the spring, you've lost your chance for that year. So you can only go at particular times a year, and it's really expensive. So if you need to send a ship, that's pretty much out of the reach of most, even wealthy merchants. I mean, the occasional wealthy merchant does fund that kind of ship. But in general, you need more money than one any one person is going to be willing to tie up for the number of years that it would take to, to run that trip. So with what the English and then also the Dutch develop are is this new mechanism of organizing money and risk called the joint stock. So they put in money and they pool their money and they do this in a way where they put it in and it's completely centralized. So if they have a ship that's going out, it's not like investor A owns the front part of the ship and investor B owns the back of the ship and investor C owns part of the middle or something like that. Instead, it's just a ship and everything that's on it is pooled. So when you put in your money, when the ship comes back and everything sells, people get their profits based on how much, you know, so the guy who put in 20,000 gets the equivalent out of the profits um, mm-hmm. in terms of percentages and more obviously than the guy who put in 100 pounds. So those people then who are elected to each year to govern the company, they have a lot of power in their hands. Mm. And that, I think, is a really um, unique thing because leaders always have power. Like, that that's not a surprise. But the amount of power, because of how expensive the trip is, how long it's going to take, the amount of power in their hands is just enormous. And that gives the East India Company, in that sense, a lot of clout. And then because it's so profitable at the beginning – Everyone wants a piece of it. Hmm. I mean, now we kind of expect that leaders in the government are not going to invest in institutions. They might, you know, we have conflict of interest laws. Right, right, right. That does not exist in the early 17th century. Right. So a lot of the leaders of government themselves want to invest money or do invest money. And so that creates this kind of nexus of interest right. where, you know, there are plenty of people in the regime who are kind of looking out for the company or at least, you know, able to help them out a little bit depending on what the question is. Right. So that, I think, is really one of the things that makes the company really unusual and special. Well, it's interesting when you talk about these, like, pools of, of sort of high-risk money because it takes, I think you wrote six months, which is incredible, to get from England to India. Um, and as you said, you can't do it all the time. 
a lot of the ships never come back. Like the people are just lost at sea. It's super, super dangerous to to, to do this in the first place. And I think back to like the, the 2008 financial crisis and you know how people talked about like pools, having pools of high risk assets, right? The idea wasn't that you bought uh, or that people bought you know, some one person's high risk mortgage, the debt on that, all these things were combined together into huge pools and they were sliced and diced. And then they were sort of, you know, parceled out again and you could buy percentages of these things and, and hope that that things turned out well. Um, but but what you're saying, like, has such resonance with when you have a risky bet uh, and a very expensive bet at that, you try to share the risk and pool the money. Yes. And that's one of the big kind of financial developments of the early 17th century is how do you share risk? Yeah. How do you share it in some kind of, you know, sustainable way? I mean, the other thing that develops over the 17th century is insurance. So they're, they're exploring a number of ways of that, of managing that kind of risk, uh, but they don't have great actuarial tools yet. So, so it's a bit haphazard at times. Uh, but the joint stock is absolutely a means of trying to to minimize that risk. And unlike with 2008, they can't parcel out the risk further. Like they're still holding it. Mm-hmm. So if something goes really wrong, they're holding the bag. Like it's their money that they do lose. And they do lose it at times. I mean, the company is phenomenally profitable in its first two decades. And then it's a lot less profitable in the 1620s and 1630s for a variety of reasons. There's a major, again, speaking of recessions, there's a major recession in England in the early 1620s. There's a major war that begins in 1618, the Thirty Years' War on the continent in Europe. And the pepper market gets flooded. Really? The pepper market gets flooded? Yeah. Not something you'd think would happen, but I guess it does. I know. It's an inelastic (laughs) demand. Like, there's not infinite demand for pepper. It's true. And the Portuguese, the Dutch, and the English are all bringing in increasing amounts of pepper. And it turns out you can have too much pepper. (laughs) So there's same thing happens with tobacco, actually, in the 20s as well. Like, once in Virginia, they figure out that tobacco is a, a winning commodity. Everyone's growing it. And then there's just more than actually there's demand for. So the pepper market gets flooded. And they're left. I mean, there are these accounts of you know, in the, in the company minutes where they'll talk about the new ships coming in and there's, there, you know, there's more pepper. And it's kind of like, well, we haven't sold the last lot of pepper yet. Mm. Like, where are we going to put it? What are we going to do with it? Because, again, they, they can't just keep selling it. It's getting less and less return. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Rupali Mishra, author of A Business of State, Commerce, Politics, and the Birth of the East India Company. Um. You know, I think a lot of people think now about um, – so there's a lot of questions around how involved companies and countries are with each other. And in different, you know, countries it's different. Like to what extent is Huawei like an, an ex, you know, part of the Chinese government? To what extent do they like execute on the – on um, what the Chinese government wants? Um and, you know, famously back in the 50s, American car companies would talk about how, like, you know, American interests are are the American country and, and American companies have really similar interests. So talk a little bit about how sort of politics and um, obviously Britain would come to dominate India. How does that get woven in? In the beginning, if it does, sort of political desires um, get woven into what this company is doing, which is like, you know, buying the pepper, buying tea, whatever, and sending it back home. 
So one element of it is that in some ways our expectations these days are really different. Like we kind of expect companies and governments to be a little more separate. Uh If they're acting in concert and we find out about it in ways that are unexpected, it feels like collusion. It feels corrupt or wrong. That expectation in some ways is much less present in the early 17th century. Okay, It's pretty much all the same thing. So that's kind of one element. At the same time, though, one of the big political questions that has a lot of resonance in the early 17th century is what is corrupt and what's corruption? So on the one hand... I don't even want to say it's an open secret because it's not even in any way secret. Of course, those are going to be unified. On the other hand, there's a lot of traction for charges of corruption. A lot of political officials get brought down in the early 17th century by being tried for corruption. So there's, in that sense, like things are changing. Like people know that some of this overlap is not appropriate and not right, but exactly what right is, is not really clear. Mm -hmm. So critics of the company are very quick to say, we are not so sure about the amount of power that's being vested in this group that is really secret and we don't know what they're doing. They keep sending silver out of the country. Their ships keep wrecking. So there's a lot of kind of criticism of the company. But at the same time, it's also not at all strange that there is this overlap. You know, when the East India Company was really growing, was there any sense from the people running the company or the monarchy, which, as you said, were kind of, you know, more entangled than we might be used to seeing now, um, was there any sense that they were laying the groundwork for an empire in India? In the way that the East India Company becomes by the mid-19th century, I don't think there was any sense of that. In the way that empire could mean, like if we think about empire as kind of the projection of a particular nation's power abroad, so, you know, they can be soft power as well as hard power. In that sense, they're very aware that they're engaged in English overseas expansion and that what they're doing is incredibly important. Do they envision what happens by the mid-19th century or even by the mid-18th century? I think that's a bit much to ask of them. The kind of power that they're imagining is about trade It's about commercial networks. And do they have ambitions there? Absolutely. I mean, they know that the Dutch in some ways have a leg up on them. There's a lot more money in the Dutch East Indies trade. But they they absolutely think that they can be a major European trading power and that with that comes all the other trappings of power, that they're going to be able to use that to develop not just, I mean, it's not just about pepper at that level. It's about power. And the East Indies trade in that sense is a central component for English power abroad. So in the new world, you've got ventures that are about colonization and taking land. In the East Indies, in the Levant, in other places, it's about trade. And the end result for all of them is the to strengthen England as a country. Hmm. So they see this overseas ventures as a key component for how do you build the nation? How do you build the strength of the regime? It's just that are they imagining kind of colonial power in the 19th century way? No. When you look at the headlines today, what about what you see around you makes you think like, wow, there is resonance here. And like, because this is what I've studied, I see it, but maybe people don't realize uh, the connections? Well, when I started this project, um, more years ago now than I'd like to admit, 
one of the things that I was really struck with was how much uh, what was in the news at that point was like Blackwater and um, the ways in which the U.S. government was licensing private corporations to run essentially military affairs overseas in Iraq. And at the time, I thought, hmm, I've seen that before. Because in some ways, the company, like that was one of the things that struck me at the beginning, uh, was that way in which these are corporate bodies that are licensed by the state to do things that the state is not necessarily powerful or willing to do on its own. You know, maybe for whatever reason, doesn't have the power, doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have the financial wherewithal to do these. So at the time, I was really struck by that, like this kind of overlap between public and private ventures that we were treating at the time in the U.S. as something weird and strange. But I think that, you know, the more that we look, and I know there are a number of historians who have been looking at kind of issues like this in the last decade or so, those are so much more common across time than we like to think about. Again, we, we like to think of our, our corporations and our government as really separate. But that overlap has been there at least since 1600, that there are corporations that the state licenses to do the things it wants done, but maybe for whatever reason can't do on its own. So that was one of the things that really struck me. And I think that if we looked harder, we'd be finding a lot more of those cases, a lot more overlap between um, the state and, and corporate bodies. Rupali Mishra is an associate professor of history at Auburn University. She's the author of A Business of State, Commerce, Politics, and the Birth of the East India Company. Rupali, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was lovely to speak with you. We talked a little about how the early incarnation of the East India Company was pretty different from the colonial power that the company would become in the 1700s and 1800s. We've got more for you on how that shift happened. Just visit us at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Asil Kibbe, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Hannah Ubley and Nadia Lewis. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.